Part Four of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Four of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard. Chapter Five. Twenty Red Nails. Two warriors lounged in the guardroom on the floor known as the Tear of the Eagle. Their attitude was casual, though habitually alert. An attack on the great bronze door from without was always a possibility, but for many years no such assault had been attempted on either side. The strangers are strong allies, said one. Olmec will move against the enemy tomorrow, I believe. He spoke as a soldier in a war might have spoken. In the miniature world of Zuchatl each handful of feudists was an army, and the empty halls between the castles was the country over which they campaigned. The other meditated for a space. "'Suppose with their aid we destroy Zotalank,' he said. "'What then, Zatmek?' "'Why,' returned Zatmek, "'we will drive red nails for them all.' The captives we will burn and flay and quarter. But afterward? pursued the other. After we have slain them all, will it not seem strange to have no foes to fight? All my life I have fought and hated the Zotalankas. With the feud ended, what is left? Zadamek shrugged his shoulders. His thoughts had never gone beyond the destruction of their foes. They could not go beyond that. Suddenly both men stiffened at a noise outside the door. "'To the door, Zatmek!' hissed the last speaker. "'I shall look through the eye!' Zatmek, sword in hand, leaned against the bronze door, straining his ear to hear through the metal. His mate looked into the mirror. He stared convulsively. Men were clustered thickly outside the door, grim, dark-faced men with swords gripped in their teeth and their fingers thrust into their ears. One who wore a feathered headdress had a set of pipes which he set to his lips, and even as the Tecutl started to shout a warning, the pipes began to skirl. The cry died in the guard's throat as the thin, weird piping penetrated the metal door and smote on his ears. Zatmek leaned frozen against the door, as if paralyzed in that position. His face was that of a wooden image, his expression one of horrified listening. The other guard, farther removed from the source of the sound, yet sensed the horror of what was taking place, the grisly threat that lay in that demoniac fifing. He felt the weird strains plucking like unseen fingers at the tissues of his brain, filling him with alien emotions and impulses of madness. But with a soul-tearing effort he broke the spell and shrieked a warning in a voice he did not recognize as his own. But even as he cried out, the music changed to an unbearable shrilling that was like a knife in the eardrums. Zatmek screamed in sudden agony, and all the sanity went out of his face like a flame blown out in a wind. Like a madman, he ripped loose the chain, tore open the door, and rushed out into the hall, sword lifted, before his mate could stop him. A dozen blades struck him down, and over his mangled body the Zotalankas surged into the guardroom with a long-drawn, blood-mad yell that sent the unwanted echoes reverberating. 
his brain reeling from the shock of it all, the remaining guard leaped to meet them with goring spear. The horror of the sorcery he had just witnessed was submerged in the stunning realization that the enemy were in Tecutli. And as his spearhead ripped through a dark-skinned belly, he knew no more, for a swinging sword crushed his skull, even as wild-eyed warriors came pouring in from the chambers behind the guardroom. It was the yelling of men and the clanging of steel that brought Conan bounding from his couch, wide awake and broadsword in hand. In an instant he had reached the door and flung it open and was glaring out into the corridor just as Tecatl rushed up to it, eyes blazing madly. "'The Zotolankus!' he screamed in a voice hardly human. "'They are within the door!' Conan ran down the corridor even as Valeria emerged from her chamber. "'What the devil is it?' she called. "'Tecatl says the Zotolankus are in,' he answered hurriedly. That racket sounds like it. With the Tecotli on their heels, they burst into the throne room and were confronted by a scene beyond the most frantic dream of blood and fury. Twenty men and women, their black hair streaming and the white skulls gleaming on their breasts, were locked in combat with the people of Tecotli. The women on both sides fought as madly as the men, and already the room and the hall beyond were strewn with corpses. Olmec naked but for a breech-clout, was fighting before his throne, and as the adventurers entered, Tessela ran from an inner chamber with a sword in her hand. Zatmek and his mate were dead, so there was none to tell the Tecutli how their foes had found their way into their citadel, nor was there any to say what had prompted that mad attempt. But the losses of the Zotolankus had been greater, their position more desperate than the Tecutli had known. The maiming of their scaly ally, the destruction of the burning skull, and the news gasped by a dying man that mysterious white-skinned allies had joined their enemies, had driven them to the frenzy of desperation, and the wild determination to die dealing death to their ancient foes. The Tecotli recovering from the first stunning shock of the surprise that had swept them back into the throne room and littered the floor with their corpses, fought back with an equally desperate fury, while the door guards from the lower floors came racing to hurl themselves into the fray. It was a death fight of rabid wolves, blind, panting, and merciless. Back and forth it surged from door to dais, blades wickering and striking into flesh blood spurting, feet stamping the crimson floor where redder pools were forming. Ivory tables crashed over, seats were splintered, velvet hangings torn down were stained red. It was the bloody climax of a bloody half-century, and every man there sensed it. But the conclusion was inevitable. The Tecotli outnumbered the invaders almost two to one, and they were heartened by that fact and by the entrance into the melee of their light-skinned allies. These crashed into the fray with the devastating effect of a hurricane plowing through a grove of saplings. In sheer strength no three Tlazitlans were a match for Conan, and in spite of his weight he was quicker on his feet than any of them. He moved through the whirling, eddying mass with the surety and destructiveness of a gray wolf amidst a pack of alley curs, and he strode over a wake of crumpled figures. Valeria fought beside him, her lips smiling and her eyes blazing. She was stronger than the average man and far quicker and more ferocious. Her sword was like a living thing in her hand. 
where Conan beat down opposition by the sheer weight and power of his blows, breaking spears, splitting skulls, and cleaving bosoms to the breastbone. Valeria brought into action a finesse of sword-play that dazzled and bewildered her antagonists before it slew them. Again and again a warrior heaving high, his heavy blade found her point in his jugular before he could strike. Conan, towering above the field, strode through the welter, smiting right and left, but Valeria moved like an elusive phantom, constantly shifting and thrusting and slashing as she shifted. Swords missed her again and again as the wielders flailed the empty air and died with her point in their hearts or throats, and her mocking laughter in their ears. Neither sex nor condition was considered by the maddened combatants. The five women of the Zotalancus were down with their throats cut before Conan and Valeria entered the fray, and when a man or woman went down under the stamping feet, there was always a knife ready for the helpless throat or a sandaled foot eager to crush the prostrate skull. From wall to wall, from door to door, rolled the waves of combat, spilling over into adjoining chambers and presently only Tecutli and their white-skinned allies stood upright in the great throne-room. The survivors stared bleakly and blankly at each other, like survivors after Judgment Day or the destruction of the world. On legs wide-braced, hands gripping notched and dripping swords, blood trickling down their arms, they stared at one another across the mangled corpses of friends and foes. They had no breath left to shout, but a bestial mad howling rose from their lips. It was not a human cry of triumph. It was the howling of a rabid wolf-pack stalking among the bodies of its victims. Conan caught Valeria's arm and turned her about. "'You've got a stab in the calf of your leg,' he growled. She glanced down, for the first time aware of a stinging in the muscles of her leg. Some dying man on the floor had fleshed his dagger with his last effort. "'You look like a butcher yourself,' she laughed. He shook a red shower from his hands. "'Not mine. Oh, a scratch here and there, nothing to bother about, but that calf ought to be bandaged.' Olmec came through the litter, looking like a ghoul, with his naked, massive shoulders splashed with blood and his black beard dabbed in crimson. His eyes were red, like the reflection of flame on black water. "'We have won!' he croaked dazedly. "'The feud is ended. The dogs of Zoltalank lie dead. Oh, for a captive to flay alive! Yet it is good to look upon their dead faces. Twenty dead dogs, twenty red nails for the black column.' "'You'd best see to your wounded,' grunted Conan, turning away from him. "'Here, girl, let me see that leg.' Wait a minute!" She shook him off impatiently. The fire of fighting still burned brightly in her soul. How do we know these are all of them? These might have come on a raid of their own. They would not split the clan on a foray like this, said Olmec, shaking his head and regaining some of his ordinary intelligence. Without his purple robe the man seemed less like a prince than some repellent beast of prey. I will stake my head upon it that we have slain them all. There were less of them than I dreamed, and they must have been desperate. But how came they in Tecutli? 
Tessela came forward, wiping her sword on her naked thigh and holding in her other hand an object she had taken from the body of the feathered leader of the Xotalancas. The pipes of madness, she said. A warrior tells me that Zatmec opened the door to the Xotalancas and was cut down as they stormed into the guardroom. This warrior came to the guardroom from the inner hall just in time to see it happen and to hear the last of a weird strain of music which froze his very soul. Tolkemec used to talk of these pipes, which the Zushatlans swore were hidden somewhere in the catacombs, with the bones of the ancient wizard who used them in his lifetime. Somehow the dogs of Zotalank found them and learned their secret. Somebody ought to go to Zotalank and see if any remain alive said Conan. I'll go if somebody will guide me. Olmec glanced at the remnants of his people. There were only twenty left alive, and of these several lay groaning on the floor. Tassela was the only one of the Tecutli who had escaped without a wound. The princess was untouched, though she had fought as savagely as any. Who will go with Conan to Zotalank? asked Olmec. Tecotl limped forward. The wound in his thigh had started bleeding afresh, and he had another gash across his ribs. I will go. No, you won't, vetoed Conan. And you're not going either, Valeria. In a little while that leg will be getting stiff. I will go, volunteered a warrior who was knotting a bandage about a slashed forearm. Very well, Yanith. Go with the Sumerian, and you too, Tobal. Olmec indicated another man whose injuries were slight. But first aid us to lift the badly wounded on these couches where we may bandage their hurts. This was done quickly. As they stooped to pick up a woman who had been stunned by a war-club, Olmec's beard brushed Topal's ear. Conan thought the prince muttered something to the warrior, but he could not be sure. A few moments later he was leading his companions down the hall. Conan glanced back as he went out the door at the shambles where the dead lay on the smoldering floor. Blood-stained, dark limbs knotted in attitudes of fierce muscular effort. Dark faces frozen in masks of hate, glassy eyes staring up at the green fire-jewels which bathed the ghastly scene in a dusky emerald witchlight. Among the dead the living moved aimlessly, like people moving in a trance. Conan heard Olmec call a woman and direct her to bandage Valeria's leg. The pirate followed the woman into an adjoining chamber, already beginning to limp slightly. Warily the two Tecotli led Conan along the hall beyond the bronze door and through chamber after chamber shimmering in the green fire. They saw no one, heard no sound. After they crossed the great hall which bisected the city from north to south, their caution was increased by the realization of their nearness to enemy territory. But chambers and halls lay empty to their wary gaze, and they came at last along a broad, dim hallway and halted before a bronze door, similar to the eagle door of Tecutli. Gingerly they tried it, and it opened silently under their fingers. Awed, they stared into the green-lit chambers beyond. For fifty years no Tecutli had entered those halls save as a prisoner going to a hideous doom. To go to Zoltalank had been the ultimate horror that could befall a man of the western castle. The terror of it had stalked through their dreams since earliest childhood. To Yanath and Topal that bronze door was like the portal of hell. 
They cringed back, unreasoning horror in their eyes, and Conan pushed past them and strode into Zoltalank. Timidly they followed him. As each man set foot over the threshold, he stared and glared wildly about him. But only their quick, hurried breathing disturbed the silence. They had come into a square guard-room, like that behind the eagle-door of Tecutli, and similarly a hall ran away from it to a broad chamber that was a counterpart of Olmec's throne-room. Conan glanced down the hall with its rugs and divans and hangings and stood listening intently. He heard no noise, and the rooms had an empty feel. He did not believe there were any Zotalankas left alive in Zushatl. Come on, he muttered, and started down the hall. He had not gone far when he was aware that only Yanith was following him. He wheeled back to see Topal standing in an attitude of horror, one arm out as if to fend off some threatening peril his distended eyes fixed with hypnotic intensity on something protruding from behind a divan. What the devil? Then Conan saw what Topol was staring at, and he felt a faint twitching of the skin between his giant shoulders. A monstrous head protruded from behind the divan, a reptilian head, broad as the head of a crocodile, with down-curving fangs that projected over the lower jaw. But there was an unnatural limpness about the thing, and the hideous eyes were glazed. Conan peered behind the couch. It was a great serpent which lay there, limp in death, but such a serpent as he had never seen in his wanderings. The reek and chill of the deep black earth were about it, and its color was an indeterminable hue which changed with each new angle from which he surveyed it. A great wound in the neck showed what had caused its death. "'It is the crawler,' whispered Yanith. "'It is the thing I slashed on the stair,' grunted Conan. After it trailed us to the eagle-door, it dragged itself here to die. How could the Zotalankas control such a brute?' The Tecutli shivered and shook their heads. "'They brought it up from the black tunnels below the catacombs.' They discovered secrets unknown to Tecutli. Well, it's dead, and if they had any more of them, they'd have brought them along when they came to Tecutli. Come on. They crowded close at his heels as he strode down the hall and thrust on the silverwork door at the other end. If we don't find anybody on this floor, he said, we'll descend into the lower floors. We'll explore Zotalank from the roof to the catacombs. If Zotalank is like Tecutli, all the rooms and halls in this tier will be lighted. What the devil? They had come into the broad throne chamber, so similar to that one in Tecutli. There were the same jade dais and ivory seat, the same divans, rugs, and hangings on the walls. No black red-scarred column stood behind the throne dais, but evidences of the grim feud were not lacking. Ranged along the wall behind the dais were rows of glass-covered shelves, and on those shelves hundreds of human heads, perfectly preserved, staring at the startled watchers with emotionless eyes as they had stared for only the gods knew how many months and years. Topal muttered a curse, but Yanith stood silent, the mad light growing in his wide eyes. Conan frowned, knowing that Tlazitlan's sanity was hung on a hair trigger. Suddenly Yanith pointed to the ghastly relics with a twitching finger. "'There is my brother's head,' he murmured, 
and there is my father's younger brother, and there beyond them is my sister's eldest son. Suddenly he began to weep, dry-eyed, with harsh, loud sobs that shook his frame. He did not take his eyes from the heads. His sobs grew shriller, changed to frightful, high-pitched laughter, and that in turn became an unbearable screaming. Yanith was stark mad. Conan laid a hand on his shoulder, and as if the touch had released all the frenzy in his soul, Yanith screamed and whirled, striking at the Cimmerian with his sword. Conan parried the blow, and Topal tried to catch Yanith's arm, but the madman avoided him, and with froth flying from his lips he drove his sword deep into Topal's body. Topal sank down with a groan, and Yanith whirled for an instant like a crazy dervish. Then he ran at the shelves and began hacking at the glass with his sword, screeching blasphemously. Conan sprang at him from behind, trying to catch him unaware and disarm him, but the madman wheeled and lunged at him, screaming like a lost soul. Realizing that the warrior was hopelessly insane, the Cimmerian sidestepped, and as the manic went past, he swung a cut that severed the shoulder-bone and breast, and dropped the man dead beside his dying victim. Conan bent over Topal, seeing that the man was at his last gasp. It was useless to seek to staunch the blood gushing from the horrible wound. "'You're done for, Topal,' grunted Conan. "'Any word you want to send to your people?' "'Bend closer,' gasped Topal, and Conan complied, and an instant later caught the man's wrist as Topal struck at his breast with a dagger. "'Grom!' swore Conan. Are you mad, too?" Olmec ordered it," gasped the dying man. I know not why. As we lifted the wounded upon the couches, he whispered to me, bidding me to slay you as we returned to Tecutli. And with the name of his clan on his lips, Topal died. Conan scowled down at him in puzzlement. This whole affair had an aspect of lunacy. Was Olmec mad, too? Were all the Tecutli madder than he had realized? With a shrug of his shoulders he strode down the hall and out of the bronze door, leaving the dead Tecutli lying before the staring dead eyes of their kinsmen's heads. Conan needed no guide back through the labyrinth they had traversed. His primitive instinct of direction led him unerringly along the route they had come. He traversed it as warily as he had before his sword in his hand, and his eyes fiercely searching each shadowed nook and corner, for it was his former allies he feared now, not the ghosts of the slain Zotolankas. He had crossed the great hall and entered the chambers beyond when he heard something moving ahead of him, something which gasped and panted and moved with a strange floundering, scrambling noise. A moment later Conan saw a man crawling over the flaming floor toward him. A man whose progress left a broad, bloody smear on the smoldering surface. It was Tecatl, and his eyes were already glazing from a deep gash in his breast. Blood gushed steadily between the fingers of his clutching hand. With the other he crawled and hitched himself along. "'Conan!' he cried chokingly. "'Conan! Olmec has taken the yellow-haired woman!' "'So that's why he told Topal to kill me.' murmured Conan, dropping to his knee beside the man who his experienced eye told him was dying. Olmec isn't so mad as I thought. Tecatl's groping fingers plucked at Conan's arm. 
In the cold, loveless, and altogether hideous life of the Tecutli, his admiration and affection for the invaders from the outer world formed a warm human oasis, constituted a tie that connected him with a more natural humanity, that was totally lacking in his fellows, whose only emotions were hate, lust, and the urge of sadistic cruelty. I sought to oppose him, gurgled Tecotl, blood bubbling frothily to his lips. But he struck me down. He thought he had slain me, but I crawled away. Ah, uh, Set, how far I have crawled in my own blood. Beware, Conan. Olmec may have set an ambush for your return. Slay Olmec. He is a beast. Take Valeria and flee. Fear not to traverse the forest. Olmec and Tessela lied about the dragons. They slew each other years ago, all save the strongest. For a dozen years there has been only one dragon. If you have slain him, there is naught in the forest to harm you. He was the god Olmec worshipped, and Olmec fed human sacrifices to him, the very old and the very young, bound and hurled from the wall. Hasten! Olmec has taken Valeria to the chamber of the— His head slumped down, and he was dead before it came to rest on the floor. Conan sprang up, his eyes like live coals. So that was Olmec's game. Having first used the strangers to destroy his foes, he should have known that something of the sort would be going on in that black-bearded degenerate's mind. The Cimmerian started toward Tecoltli with reckless speed. Rapidly he reckoned the numbers of his former allies. Only twenty-one, counting Olmec, had survived that fiendish battle in the throne room. Three had died since, which left seventeen enemies with which to reckon. In his rage Conan felt capable of accounting for the whole clan single-handed. But the innate craft of the wilderness rose to guide his berserk rage. He remembered Tecatl's warning of an ambush. It was quite probable that the prince would make such provisions on the chance that Topal might have failed to carry out his order. Olmec would be expecting him to return by the same route he had followed in going to Zotalank. Conan glanced up at the skylight under which he was passing and caught the blurred glimmer of stars. They had not yet begun to pale for dawn. The events of the night had been crowded into a comparatively short space of time. He turned aside from his direct course and descended a winding staircase to the floor below. He did not know where the door was to be found that let into the castle on that level, but he knew he could find it. How he was to force the locks he did not know. He believed that the doors of Tecutli would all be locked and bolted, if for no other reason than the habits of half a century. But there was nothing else but to attempt it. Sword in hand, he hurried noiselessly on through a maze of green-lit or shadowy rooms and halls. He knew he must be near Tecutli when a sound brought him up short. He recognized it for what it was, a human being trying to cry out through a stifling gag. It came from somewhere ahead of him, and to the left, in those deathly still chambers, a small sound carried a long way. Conan turned aside and went seeking after the sound, which continued to be repeated. Presently he was glaring through a doorway upon a weird scene. In the room into which he was looking a low, rack-like frame of iron lay on the floor, and a giant figure was bound prostrate upon it. 
His head rested on a bed of iron spikes, which were already crimson-pointed with blood where they had pierced his scalp. A peculiar harness-like contrivance was fastened about his head, though in such a manner that the leather band did not protect his scalp from the spikes. This harness was connected by a slender chain to the mechanism that upheld a huge iron ball which was suspended above the captive's hairy breast. As long as the man could force himself to remain motionless, the iron ball hung in its place. But when the pain of the iron points caused him to lift his head, the ball lurched downward a few inches. Presently his aching neck muscles would no longer support his head in its unnatural position, and it would fall back on the spikes again. It was obvious that eventually the ball would crush him to pulp, slowly and inexorably. The victim was gagged, and above the gag his great black ox eyes rolled wildly toward the man in the doorway, who stood in silent amazement. The man on the rack was Olmec, Prince of Tecutli. Chapter 6 The Eyes of Tassela Why did you bring me into this chamber to bandage my legs? demanded Valeria. Couldn't you have done it just as well in the throne room? She sat on a couch with her wounded leg extended upon it, and the Tecutli woman had just bound it with silk bandages. Valeria's red-stained sword lay on the couch beside her. She frowned as she spoke. The woman had done her task silently and efficiently, but Valeria liked neither the lingering, caressing touch of her slim fingers nor the expression in her eyes. They have taken the rest of the wounded into the other chambers," answered the woman in the soft speech of the Tecutli women, which somehow did not suggest either softness or gentleness in the speakers. A little while before Valeria had seen this same woman stab a Zotalanka woman through the breast and stamp the eyeballs out of a wounded Zotalanka man. They will be carrying the corpses of the dead down into the catacombs, she added lest the ghosts escape into the chambers and dwell there. "'Do you believe in ghosts?' asked Valeria. "'I know the ghost of Tolkemec dwells in the catacombs,' she answered with a shiver. "'Once I saw it as I crouched in a crypt among the bones of a dead queen. It passed by in the form of an ancient man with flowing white beard and locks and luminous eyes that blazed in the darkness. It was Tolkemec. I saw him living when I was a child, and he was being tortured." Her voice sank to a fearful whisper. Olmec laughs, but I know Tolkemec's ghost dwells in the catacombs. They say it is rats which gnaw the flesh from the bones of the newly dead, but ghosts eat flesh? Who knows, but that— She glanced up quickly as a shadow fell across the couch. Valeria looked up to see Olmec gazing down at her. The prince had cleansed his hands, torso, and beard of the blood that had splashed them, but he had not donned his robe, and his great dark-skinned hairless body and limbs renewed the impression of strength bestial in its nature. His deep black eyes burned with a more elemental light, and there was the suggestion of a twitching in the fingers that tugged at his thick blue-black beard. He stared fixedly at the woman, and she rose and glided from the chamber. As she passed through the door, she cast a look over her shoulder at Valeria, a glance full of cynical derision and obscene mockery. "'She has done a clumsy job,' 
criticized the prince, coming to the divan and bending over the bandage. Let me see. With a quickness amazing in one of his bulk, he snatched her sword and threw it across the chamber. His next move was to catch her in his giant arms. Quick and unexpected as the move was, she almost matched it, for even as he grabbed her, her dirk was in her hand and she stabbed murderously at his throat. More by luck than skill he caught her wrist and then began a savage wrestling match. She fought him with fists, feet, knees, teeth, and nails. With all the strength of her magnificent body and all the knowledge of hand-to-hand -hand fighting she had acquired in her years of roving and fighting on sea and land, it availed her nothing against his brute strength. She lost her dirk in the first moment of contact and thereafter found herself powerless to inflict any appreciable pain on her giant attacker. The blaze in his weird black eyes did not alter, and their expression filled her with fury fanned by the sardonic smile that seemed carved upon his bearded lips. Those eyes and that smile contained all the cruel cynicism that seethes below the surface of a sophisticated and degenerate race. And for the first time in her life Valeria experienced fear of a man. It was like struggling against some huge elemental force. His iron arms thwarted her efforts with an ease that sent panic racing through her limbs. He seemed impervious to any pain she could inflict. Only once, when she sank her white teeth savagely into his wrist so that the blood started, did he react, and that was to buffet her brutally upon the side of the head with his opened hands so that stars flashed before her eyes and her head rolled on her shoulders. Her shirt had been torn open in the struggle, and with cynical cruelty he rasped his thick beard across her bare breasts, bringing the blood to suffuse the fair skin and fetching a cry of pain and outraged fury from her. Her convulsive resistance was useless. She was crushed down on a couch, disarmed and panting, her eyes blazing up at him like the eyes of a trapped tigress. A moment later he was hurrying from the chamber, carrying her in his arms. She made no resistance, but the smoldering of her eyes showed that she was unconquered in spirit at least. She had not cried out. She knew that Conan was not within call, and it did not occur to her that any in Tecutli would oppose their prince. But she noticed that Olmec went stealthily, with his head on one side as if listening for sounds of pursuit, and he did not return to the throne chamber. He carried her through a door that stood opposite that through which he had entered, crossed another room, and began stealing down a hall. As she became convinced that he feared some opposition to the abduction, she threw back her head and screamed at the top of her lusty voice. She was rewarded by a slap that half stunned her, and Olmec quickened his pace to a shambling run. But her cry had been echoed, and twisting her head about Valeria through the tears and stars that partly blinded her saw Tecatl limping after them. Olmec turned with a snarl shifting the woman to an uncomfortable and certainly undignified position under one arm, where he held her writhing and kicking vainly, like a child. Olmec, protested Tecatl, you cannot be such a dog as to do this thing. She is Conan's woman. She helped us slay the Zotolankus and— Without a word, Olmec balled his free hand into a huge fist and stretched the wounded warrior senseless at his feet. Stooping and hindered not at all by the struggles and imprecations of his captive, he drew Tecatl's sword from its sheath and stabbed the warrior in the breast. 
Then, casting aside the weapon, he fled along the corridor. He did not see a woman's dark face peer cautiously after him from behind a hanging. It vanished, and presently Takato groaned and stirred, rose dazedly, and staggered drunkenly away, calling Conan's name. Olmec hurried on down the corridor and descended a winding ivory staircase. He crossed several corridors and halted at last in a broad chamber whose doors were veiled with heavy tapestries, with one exception, a heavy bronze door, similar to the door of the eagle on the upper floor. He was moved to rumble, pointing to it. That is one of the outer doors of Tecutli. For the first time in fifty years it is unguarded. We need not guard it now, for Zotalank is no more. Thanks to Conan and me, you bloody rogue, sneered Valeria, trembling with fury and the shame of physical coercion. You treacherous dog! Conan will cut your throat for this! Olmec did not bother to voice his belief that Conan's own gullet had already been severed according to his whispered command. He was too utterly cynical to be at all interested in her thoughts or opinions. His flame-lit eyes devoured her, dwelling burningly on the generous expanses of clear white flesh exposed where her shirt and breeches had been torn in the struggle. Forget Conan, he said thickly. Olmec is lord of Zuchatl. Zoltalank is no more. There will be no more fighting. We shall spend our lives in drinking and love-making. First, let us drink. He seated himself on an ivory table and pulled her down on his knees like a dark-skinned satyr, with a white nymph in his arms. Ignoring her unnymph-like profanity, he held her helpless with one great arm about her waist while the other reached across the table and secured a vessel of wine. Drink, he commanded, forcing it to her lips as she writhed her head away. The liquor slopped over, stinging her lips, splashing down on her naked breasts. Your guest does not like your wine, Olmec, spoke a cool, sardonic voice. Olmec stiffened. Fear grew in his flaming eyes. Slowly he swung his great head about and stared at Tassella, who posed negligently in the curtained doorway, one hand on her smooth hip. Valeria twisted herself about in his iron grip, and when she met the burning eyes of Tassella, a chill tingled along her supple spine. New experiences were flooding Valeria's proud soul that night. Recently she had learned to fear a man. Now she knew what it was to fear a woman. Olmec sat motionless, a gray pallor growing under his swarthy skin. Tassella brought her other hand from behind her and displayed a small gold vessel. I feared she would not like your wine, Olmec, purred the princess. So I brought some of mine. Some I brought with me long ago from the shores of Lake Zuad. Do you understand, Olmec? Beads of sweat stood out suddenly on Olmec's brow. His muscles relaxed, and Valeria broke away and put the table between them. But though reason told her to dart from the room, some fascination she could not understand held her rigid, watching the scene. Tassella came toward the seated prince with a swaying, undulating walk that was mockery in itself. Her voice was soft, slurringly caressing, but her eyes gleamed. Her slim fingers stroked his beard lightly. You are selfish, Olmec, she crooned, smiling. You would keep our handsome guest to yourself, though you knew I wished to entertain her. 
You are much at fault, Olmec. The mask dropped for an instant. Her eyes flashed, her face was contorted, and with an appalling show of strength her hand locked convulsively in his beard and tore out a great handful. This evidence of unnatural strength was no more terrifying than the momentary barring of the hellish fury that raged under her bland exterior. Olmec lurched up with a roar and stood swaying like a bear, his mighty hands clenching and unclenching. Slut! His booming voice filled the room. Witch! She-devil! Tecutli should have slain you fifty years ago! Be gone! I have endured too much from you! This white-skinned wench is mine! Get hence before I slay you!" The princess laughed and dashed the blood-stained strands into his face. Her laughter was less merciful than the ring of flint on steel. "'Once you spoke otherwise, Olmec,' she taunted. Once in your youth you spoke words of love. I, you were my lover once, years ago, and because you loved me you slept in my arms beneath the enchanted lotus, and thereby put into my hands the chains that enslaved you. You know you cannot withstand me. You know I have but to gaze into your eyes with the mystic power a priest of Stygia taught me long ago, and you are powerless. You remember the night beneath the black lotus that waved above us? stirred by no worldly breeze. You sent again the unearthly perfumes that stole and rose like a cloud about you to enslave you. You cannot fight against me. You are my slave as you were that night, as you shall be so long as you shall live, Olmec of Zuchatl. Her voice had sunk to a murmur like the rippling of a stream running through starlit darkness. She leaned close to the prince and spread her long, tapering fingers upon his giant breast. His eyes glazed. His great hands fell limply to his sides. With a smile of cruel malice, Tassella lifted the vessel and placed it to his lips. Drink! Mechanically the prince obeyed, and instantly the glaze passed from his eyes and they were flooded with fury, comprehension, and an awful fear. His mouth gaped, but no sound issued. For an instant he reeled on his buckling knees and then fell in a sodden heap on the floor. His fall jolted Valeria out of her paralysis. She turned and sprang toward the door, but with a movement that would have shamed a leaping panther, Tessella was before her. Valeria struck at her with her clenched fist and all the power of her supple body behind the blow. It would have stretched a man senseless on the floor, but with a lithe twist of her torso Tassella avoided the blow and caught the pirate's wrist. The next instant Valeria's left hand was imprisoned, and holding her wrists together with one hand, Tassella calmly bound them with a cord she drew from her girdle. Valeria thought she had tasted the ultimate in humiliation already that night, but her shame at being manhandled by Olmec was nothing to the sensations that now shook her supple frame. Valeria had always been inclined to despise the other members of her sex, and it was overwhelming to encounter another woman who could handle her like a child. She scarcely resisted at all when Tassella forced her into a chair and, drawing her bound wrists down between her knees, fastened them to the chair. Casually stepping over Olmec, Tassella walked to the bronze door and shot the bolt and threw it open, revealing a hallway without. Opening upon this hall, she remarked, speaking to her feminine captive for the first time, 
There is a chamber which in old times was used as a torture-room. When we retired to Tecutli, we brought most of the apparatus with us, but there was one piece too heavy to move. It is still in working order. I think it will be quite convenient now." An understanding flame of terror rose in Olmec's eyes. Tessela strode back to him, bent, and gripped him by the hair. "'He is only paralyzed temporarily,' she remarked conversationally. "'He can hear, think, and feel. I. He can feel very well indeed." With which sinister observation she started toward the door, dragging the giant bulk with an ease that made the pirate's eyes dilate. She passed into the hall and moved down it without hesitation, presently disappearing with her captive into a chamber that opened into it, and whence shortly thereafter issued the clank of iron. Valeria swore softly and tugged vainly with her legs braced against the chair. The cords that confined her were apparently unbreakable. Tessella presently returned alone. Behind her a muffled groaning issued from the chamber. She closed the door but did not bolt it. Tessella was beyond the grip of habit as she was beyond the touch of other human instincts and emotions. Valeria sat dumbly, watching the woman in whose slim hands the pirate realized her destiny now rested. Tessella grasped her yellow locks and forced back her head, looking impersonally down into her face. But the glitter in the dark eyes was not impersonal. "'I have chosen you for a great honor,' she said. "'You shall restore the youth of Tassella.' "'Oh, you stare at that. My appearance is that of youth, but through my veins creeps the sluggish chill of approaching age, as I have felt it a thousand times before.' I am old, so old I do not remember my childhood. But I was a girl once, and a priest of Stygia loved me and gave me the secret of immortality and youth everlasting. He died then, some say by poison. But I dwelt in my palace by the shores of Lake Zuad, and the passing years touched me not. So at last a king of Stygia desired me, and my people rebelled and brought me to this land. Olmec called me a princess. I, I am not of royal blood. I am greater than a princess. I am Tassella, whose youth, your own glorious youth, shall restore." Valeria's tongue clove to the roof of her mouth. She sensed here a mystery darker than the degeneracy she had anticipated. The taller woman unbound the Aquilonian's wrists and pulled her to her feet. It was not fear of the dominant strength that lurked in the princess's limbs that made Valeria a helpless, quivering captive in her hands. It was the burning, hypnotic, terrible eyes of Tassella. End of Part 4 of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard